Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society and your go-to podcast for all things pediatric cardiac critical care. On today's episode, Dr. Sarah Tabbitt from UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital and a member of our PCICS Connections Committee and Podcasting Subcommittee speaks with Dr. Ravi Theogarajan from Boston Children's Hospital about his Anthony Chang Award lecture at the PCICS virtual meeting this year, as well as his storied career as an ECMO researcher. Before we get started, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, I wanted to ask you a few questions first uh, regarding the um, context of your um, lecture specifically related to ELSO. I know that ELSO um, has been an important part of your academic career, and I wondered if you could describe, particularly for people getting started, how you um, initially developed that relationship and, um, and how that helped you over the course of your career. Uh, First of all, uh, Sarah, thank you very much uh, for speaking with me today. Uh, It's a real pleasure to do this. Um, So for me, uh, I think I was interested in ECMO to start with, um, and uh, both clinically um, as as well as from a research perspective. Uh, And I found the technology um, fascinating, uh, and the fact that it could save lives was really uh, fascinating for me. So I, um, uh, my introduction to ELSO came through really working with the registry uh, and looking at data from the registry uh, to write. Um, one of the very first works that I published was on eCPR. And at that time, uh, there was no large uh, multicenter uh, outcomes paper on pediatric eCPR. Um, and it was really interesting to get the data from ELSO Uh, and to put it together in a way that would be useful for everybody. Um, So I think I was really, um, that fascinated me. Um, And then uh, in 2009, um, uh, I got an opportunity to speak with Dr. Bartlett, who was also an author on on one of my papers. Uh, And uh, he asked me if I would be interested in overseeing the registry. And for me, I think uh, that was a really good opportunity. at the time that I, uh, that I joined the registry, uh, there was very little coming out of the registry from a scientific point of view. Um, and although this data existed um, and really uh, uh, very useful data, um, outcomes for ECMO were largely uh, unknown. Um, and this was a really good way of uh, getting into it and describing the data. Uh, and for me, that really set me on uh, the path of uh, one, discovering outcomes, and two, thinking about ECMO systems that would, uh, that would make ECMO care uh, really interesting and easier and perhaps um, you know, clinically um, useful for patients and their families. So in your talk, um, you touched on near the end uh, out-of-house arrest and eCPR, which um, I actually hadn't thought about until I gave, a, I think I was at... Uh, gave a talk in Australia a few years ago and the group from Paris was describing their experiences all in adults. Um, but it seemed feasible, but challenged by, I guess you cannulate everybody and then hope that someone has a good outcome. Do you, what are you, what's your thoughts about that and whether it will be something that's gonna be 
commonplace or just continue to be something that's unusual in the United States, particularly, particularly for the pediatric patients where you've got the issue of, you know, different cannula sizes, et cetera? Yeah, I think uh, out of hospital cannulating uh, for ECMO for out of hospital cardiac arrest is going to be challenging in pediatrics because uh, the uh, the costs of pediatric arrests are very different than adult arrests. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the current state of the art is really cannulating patients uh, for ventricular fibrillation arrest, largely related to ischemic heart disease. So these are patients who have um, something that's reversible uh, and therefore they can recover. And I'm not entirely sure that that's true in pediatrics all the time. Uh, for example, if you have uh, a respiratory deterioration and then have a cardiac arrest, uh, it is possible that your outcomes may not be as good, even though you may be supported with ECMO. Uh, so I think uh, for pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is going to be challenging, mm -hmm. but it's clearly um, the way the ECPR field is moving. Uh, mm -hmm. I think people are uh, trying to bring ECMO to the patient um, and uh, you know, technology is movable. Um, and perhaps we might find indications in pediatrics if we look hard enough. Uh, but I, I, my, my feeling is that it would be much harder to implement in pediatrics than in adults. Um, but, you know, have to have an open mind uh, to see if we can advance it. Yeah. It's interesting over the years that um, patients that are candidates for eCPR has definitely changed. Um, I feel like early in my career, Pulmonary hypertension was a error. Pulmonary hypertension was a contraindication to eCPR. Potentially single ventricles. Um, do you feel like there is any? I'm, I mean, unless the you know, other than the length of the downtime, do you feel like there's any candidate now who is clearly not a candidate for eCPR? Um, I think if you don't have a reversible, I mean, certainly quality of CPR is really uh, important. But if you look at the diagnostic aspects of patients, patients who don't have a reversible condition, as if you have the knowledge before the arrest, then one could exclude them from, uh, from eCPR. Um, for me, uh, working in the cardiac intensive care unit, there are a few patients that I consider perhaps not good candidates. And some of them are the cavopulmonary connection patients who have elevated venous uh, pressures, and therefore the cerebral resuscitation in those patients is quite challenging. Uh, and you, even if you, um, you know, identify the arrest early, provide a good quality CPR, those are patients who perhaps may not have good outcomes. And therefore, for for those patients, I would um, I would consider um, uh, not providing them eCPR. However, uh, I think we're all interested in in saving as many patients as as we can. Um, so if there are, there are those there are challenging patients for me, and if we went on eCPR, I think it's incumbent upon us to find out if it helped the patient or not early. Uh, so that if uh, ECMO is futile, then you come to a good conclusion with the family and stop. Um, other um, other patient diagnosis that I consider um, not good candidates is are patients with outflow tract obstructions who you can't get blood out during CPR uh, to the systemic circulation. Um, the um, patients who have severe AV valve regurgitations, uh, blood travels in the opposite direction and not out the outflow tracts when you provide CPR. So those are patients I hesitate. Um, and if there, are, there is a patient um, that you're managing in your intensive care unit, uh, with those features, and you want to really be ahead of the game and really push your team 
to get on ECMO during critical deterioration and not wait. Right. Right. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting. I um, I think Peter Lawson taught me this that so you shouldn't put a glen on ECMO yeah. with ECPR. And then, I mean, you have a publication where the survival is not it's not horrible, and the neurologic outcome is reasonable. And so, when that came out, I felt really badly about going to the ED and telling them to stop <laughs> um, resuscitating a patient with bidirectional glen. Um, I do feel like like the you know. They're difficult patients, but there there are some survivals with reasonable with yeah. reasonable outcomes. Okay, I'm going to um, uh, switch gears for a second and maybe make you a little bit uncomfortable. But your second slide um, of your talk was the previous uh, Anthony Chang uh, lectures, which are all very well accomplished male white white males. Um, and, and with, result, with, with the results, which are not yet published of a recent workforce survey where we did that um, in my age group, only 17% of the workforce is female. Whereas in the age group of less than 35, 65% of the workforce is female. What do you see in terms of women breaking into the field or actually being able to do the Anthony Chang? Uh, lecture. How do you see women in our field like progressing? Uh, great question, Sarah. Um, I think, um, you know, I consider my women colleagues equally. Uh, and I think uh, um, it is incumbent upon us to provide them all the support they need to, to, um, to get to the Anthony Chang lecture. Uh, and I it would make me extremely happy and extremely proud to see um, a, a woman candidate for the AC Chang lecture. And I am hoping it'll be soon, maybe next year. I really would hope so. Um, uh, you, you know, I think there are such um, wonderful uh, women who um, in our field that have shaped the field. I mean, I can think of um, people like Nancy, who, Nancy Ghanem, who uh, really set up the home monitoring program. And it's a feature of what we do for children with single ventricle palliation. Um, you, you know, and those are uh, the movers and shakers in our, in our, in our field. Um, and I'm extremely proud uh, to share the field with them. So, um, so I hope it'll be soon. Good answer. Hopefully next year. Okay. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit off of your uh, lecture and just ask you a little bit of career questions to help people who are coming along in the field. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your transition to being a CSU director um, and the pluses and minuses of that leadership role mm -hmm. uh, and whether that's something that you would set as an aspiration for someone coming up through the field uh, necessarily? Yeah. So um, uh, just a little bit of background, and this is really personal to me. I never actually really uh, aspired to be the uh, director of the unit, um, but it, uh, with circumstances led me to take on that role. Um, and um, one of the things that I relied on um, you know, in my role uh, is my 20 years of experience being at Boston Children's. So I knew the place well, um, and I knew what the issues were. So it helped me uh, move our teams forward. Um, for people um, who are aspiring to be um, uh, to aspiring in the field, I think it's a it's a role uh, that if you really enjoy, you should do. Uh, I think it's it's administrative. Um, there's a lot of things to fix. Um, 
it's probably going to take you away from, from your research interests. If that's important to you, uh, then it may be really difficult to share those interests. For me, it came at a time uh, when I think uh, I, um, you know, not to sound uh, or not to blow my own horn, I was peaking uh, at my career. Um, I had just been put up for a professorship. Uh, I thought that was kind of the last frontier for me. Uh, so it, um, and I was uh, very um, interested in helping uh, my colleagues uh, in a place that I had gotten a lot from. Um, so those uh, kind of two things really led me to do this. But if you're starting really young and early, uh, then um, I think this job is going to be largely um, uh, making sure that um, that your colleagues and your your faculty uh, are well taken care of. So there's a lot of people related um, issues that you want to deal with. Uh, there's a lot of uh, making sure that you provide quality um, quality um, care for your patients, uh, making sure that your unit runs well um, and. Uh, and, and therefore, most of your time is going to be spent doing that. Um, um, so uh, if you have academic aspirations, personally, I don't think it may be a good job. It may be something that you might want to do at the end of your academic career. I certainly think that that would be uh, the best way to do it. And, and certainly it works so for me. It's interesting insight since I stepped into that role four years out of fellowship. And definitely I would not recommend that as... Uh, an initial pathway because as uh, Ravi's saying, um, it's very difficult to come up for promotion if you've taken that job on really early. Um, so another question for you is like in this current era of increasing technology um, in terms of ways to monitor and assess patients like NEARS, T3, additional monitoring, how do you teach like the trainees to like the physical exam and the intuition that a patient is like fine or the patient actually is not fine? Um, I, I think for me, uh, standing, uh, and so we, I do rounds at the bedside. So you have to see your patient. And I think for me, the most important thing, the monitors tell you a lot uh, about your patient, but at the end of the day, I think how I treat a patient uh, is looking at and examining a patient and having intuition about things. Um, I think intuition develops over time. I don't think it, you have intuition on day number one, but when things are going wrong, most people do have something in the back of their brain telling them things are not right here. And I think developing that is really important. Um, for me, um, I make it a point to, uh, to focus on physical exam when I'm, um, when I'm rounding with my, my fellows. Uh, and hopefully, um, you know, it rubs off on them um, that not everything is numbers and, and, and screens. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's somebody on the bed that you really want to do uh, provide the best care for. And, you know, there are many, many, there are many instances where uh, you know, you have your lab values that tell you to do something, but you look at a patient in the bed uh, who's well, uh, and therefore being careful with in your interventions is really important. Uh, and I think that is going to be setting an example uh, and uh, and allowing people to develop their intuitions. I think those those are important characteristics of of people in our field or junior people in our field. Yeah, I think it's. I agree with you. I think it's super important, and then. It's easy when you're just looking at the computer and the um, graphic trends to actually not examine the patient, but I think things are missed. So can you tell me um, 
What role have nurses played um, both in your training um, and also in your, in your current uh, career? Um, I think I've learned most things from, uh, from, uh, from nursing staff. Uh, I, I think they have an excellent way of assessing a situation in a very standardized fashion. Uh, and they, uh, and they, provide a, um, uh, they provide a framework that you can work with. And I've always been impressed by, by that. Um, and I've learned a lot by um, you know, taking night calls with them, um, including, uh, I think one of the most important things for us as attending staff is, uh, is how you prioritize where your attention should be. Uh, and I think if you work with your know, charge nurses, they do that day in and day out. And for me, that was an invaluable lesson to, to learn. Um, you, you know, we have 31 patients in our unit. I can't pay attention to all 31, but I know that there are 10 or 12 patients who I really need to focus on. Uh, and, um, and, you know, learning that from nursing staff has been really good. The other things that I've learned from, uh, from nursing, my nursing colleagues is, uh, is compassion. Um, you know, taking care of putting the patient first. Um, and also playing, uh, paying attention to what families think uh, and, to, and to listen to uh, other points of view um, and also to look at your patient from the parent point of view. I think nurses have an, a very nice way of bringing that all together. Uh, and for me, that's been invaluable. Um, I could say that there are really important uh, uh, people in the nursing field that have really taught me a lot and I really benefited from, uh, from, from that throughout my career. Yeah, I completely agree. I think my clinical skills were all taught to me by the nurses in Boston. Um, so if you're on call for the night, do you ever like check the schedule and see who's on with you? Who's the most important like person to make you feel comfortable being on? Is it the fellow? Is it the charge nurse? Is it the so, uh, from advanced charge, practice nurse? Yeah. The charge nurses point of view, I think uh, I always get, you know, we've got the best charge nurses around. So I have no concerns from that point of view. I do check once in a while to see what the, what the, who, who, who I'm on with from a fellow point of view. And that's related to the fact that here at Children's, we don't own our fellows in our cardiac unit. So you may be combined with, uh, with fellows that are uh, either uh, who come from various training backgrounds, like from example, neonatology uh, or pediatric intensive care who have very little experience with cardiac intensive care. Uh, so for those, when those fellows are on, I know that I might have to pay a lot more attention to, um, to children, uh, uh, to, the, to the cardiology aspects of critical care. So yes, I do look and see who I'm on with and what their background is. Um, but you get who you get and you have to make it work. So I'm good with that. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. But sometimes, sometimes I don't peek and then I get there and then I peek and see who's on. Um, I've got one last question for you and it's probably not a good one to end on. So I'll come up with something else, but um, do you have anything to say about burnout? Um, you know, getting to the end, not the end of the career. That's a, that's the wrong way to say it, but um, you know, sort of doing the same thing year after year, um, you know, call schedules can be hard. Um, the hours can be long, um, coming into work. Sometimes I come into work and I'm just like all full of energy. And, and then sometimes I come to work and I'm just like not full of energy. Right. Um, do you, do you have anything that you could share 
not just for you personally, but for people who are coming up through training to like think about ways to try, try to avoid that? So I have two, um, two aspects to that question, Sarah. Uh, one is that uh, burnout is real uh, and it, uh, in a field like ours, which is really high impact um, and there's lots going on. Um, and uh, I think one could easily get into the trap. And so my advice uh, to my uh, junior colleagues uh, and fellows in training is that you have to pace yourself. Um, you can't do everything all at once uh, and work really hard, but pacing yourself may actually uh, be a good way of preventing burnout. It's really important to take, uh, take time to recover uh, from being on service or being on call. Um, I think it's really important to have a hobby uh, or to think of something that's very um, that's completely outside of medicine that you can uh, that you can develop and enjoy doing. Um, I think that's really quite important. Um, from a, a, the other aspect of burnout or how our profession is shaping is that um, aging in our profession is not something that we often think of. Uh, but I think as we grow older, um, I think there are many limitations to what we can do. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, I think um, perhaps a thoughtful conversation as to how we might deal with that. Um, the issue with, uh, with aging is that you will have a lot of experience dealing with situations and those come very naturally to you. Um, and you don't want that experience to be taken away from your unit but perhaps we can operationalize ourselves in a different way, uh, being more in the supervisory role um, and being more available to our junior colleagues to consult rather than being at the front end all the time. I think this is an important area for our profession and for PCICS perhaps to think about how we might keep the talent and keep the experience, but also uh, provide uh, excellent working opportunities for our aging uh, aid, uh, professionals who are aging in our, in our field. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Ravi, because I do think that there are some people who, when the hours and the call get too long, instead of transitioning to what you're proposing, actually move out of the ICU to something else, depending on what their training is. Um, and it is a loss because they have a huge amount of experience um, mm -hmm. to teach. So my last question for you is, um, let's say you're a resident or a first year cardiology fellow or first year critical care fellow and you're thinking of going into critical care. Um, what's your advice, yes or no? I would, uh, I, it's a fascinating field. Uh, it's got a lot of purpose. Um, and, you know, my 22 years in this, I really enjoyed myself. So my, uh, my, when people ask me, I always say, yeah, it's a great field. Um, but pace yourself um, and don't do everything at once and make sure you take care of yourself. I mean, um, and I think those are my advice to, um, to people who ask me that question. Uh, it's yeah. a great field. I completely agree. I feel like of all my friends, I'm the only person who goes to work and actually gets challenged. If not every day, then at least every week with something I haven't seen and something right. I need to deal with um, right. that seems to be important. So yeah, it's, it's never routine, isn't it? Uh, there's always something new. Um, so I, it's, it's great because that keeps you on your feet. Perhaps keeps us young, I don't know. You know. Well, it didn't keep me young, but maybe you. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. This has been awesome.
Thanks to all our listeners for joining us again on the PCICS podcast. Don't forget to visit our website, PCICS.org, to find out about how to become a member, get involved, job listings, educational resources, and much, much more. The song I Don't Know By Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.